and amen, amen, amen. Well, uh, a few years ago, I, uh, I started to have a little bit of pain, a little bit of discomfort uh, in my mouth. I, I had a tooth that was causing some problems and, and challenges, and so I did what we all did. I, I you know, went to the dentist and started to explain my symptoms and what's going on, which led to x-rays, and then the x-rays revealed that I had an abscess under one of, my, one of the two teeth, tooth, teeth? tooth, right, under the tooth, and also that, uh, that tooth that was causing me problems uh, had, a, had a root that never fully developed. It had a, had a shortened root, and I remember talking to the dentist because the dentist wanted to ask him some question, wanted to know, did you ever have any trauma to that side of your face? Now, I thought he was joking because growing up, I felt like I was constantly getting hit in that side of the face, right? I had two other brothers who liked to pop me in the mouth every now and then. I played sports. I was constantly getting hit with a basketball or football or something like that. I grew up skiing. I grew up in Ohio, and so I would fall. Lots of trauma to that side of the face, so I thought he was joking. Well, the other side to it is that I asked him if we can just leave it alone. I, don't, I was like, I don't want to deal with this. I know what this is going to mean. This is going to be a long process, and then the dentist looked at me like I was joking and said, you can't leave this alone because if you have an abscess under the root of your tooth, what can happen is it can cause an infection. It actually can cause uh, uh, more pain than you're having right now. In fact, pain that will lead you to six feet under the ground if you leave this alone, and so we decided, we made the decision to have that tooth removed. I actually had a, have a photo of what happened after I got my tooth removed right there. No, I'm just... <laughs> I'm just joking. That's not me, but that is what it looked like after they were done and they replaced that tooth. But here's the question this morning. Here's the question. Have you ever, have you ever, uh, have you ever had something to where you knew it wasn't right, but you didn't want to fix it? Have you ever had something like that where you knew it wasn't right, but you didn't want to fix it? Has anybody have ever had any car issues before? Say, yeah right? And you know something ain't right. It's rattling. It's smoking. It's doing something that it shouldn't be doing. And what do you do? You take it, but you don't really want to know because you don't want them to come back with that piece of paper that has that big number on there, right? We don't want to know about that thing. Or if you had somebody that you needed to have a conversation with, but you knew that if you had that conversation, it was going to lead to more conversations. And it was like, I would just rather watch Netflix, right? I don't want to deal with that. Or, Or even when it comes to issues of our own character, where we know there's something ain't right. It's like, I I got this tendency. I kind of have this thing. I I have this pattern, but I don't really want to wade into it. If you're here this morning, you've ever had something like that happen, just know that that this is something that I think is uh, prevalent in our society and our culture, is that we don't like to deal with the issues, but we want to treat the symptoms, right? It's always funny to me when you watch TV and there's like, there's a pill that can fix every kind of symptom, but it creates like 30 other problems. Have you ever noticed that? Because here's the thing. We live in a society that's obsessed with alleviating symptoms, not addressing the underlying issues. An example, just take the pill, take a drink, take a bite, numb it, ignore it, excuse it, run from it. But the problem is, if you only address the symptom, the symptom returns. If I would have went to my dentist and said, is there any kind of topical cream that you have or special toothpaste that I can use to fix this, he would have laughed at me because we have to deal with the underlying issue. Now, here is the big idea for this morning and throughout this series. It's this, is that without a proper diagnosis, they can't give you a prescription, right? It's the first thing. Put that up. Without, you can't get a a prescription 
without a diagnosis. Just this past week, we finally were able to get um, our, our youngest daughter, uh, Ellie, in. She's had a, a diaper rash that we just haven't been able to deal with, and, and we've emailed the doctor, and they've given us all kinds of things, and finally it led to us going in. And it, it's always interesting to me, like when you go and talk to the doctors, because they literally ask you a hundred questions, right? They literally ask you, well, uh, what kind of grass do you have around your house? Like, what kind of stuff is going on here? Like, all of these different questions because what he's trying or she is trying to do is they're asking questions so that they can diagnose what's wrong so that they can prescribe the thing to make you better. Now, here is the twist and the turn for us this morning is that we are so comfortable with doing that, whether it comes to a a dentist appointment or a baby, but when it comes to our souls and how we operate, we're a little bit uh, not comfortable with that. How many of us, we don't want people asking us questions about why we are the way that we are, right? We just want to say, I'm just me, take it or leave it, right? And some of us are like, a lot of people have left it behind, right? But, but we, we want to just say that, and we want to do that, but, it, but it's not how it works. And that's the surprising thing this morning, I think, if you consider yourself a Christ follower, is because at some point, you gave your life to Jesus, and then you realize that on the other side of giving your life to Jesus, that you still dealt with some of the old stuff. And then you might have heard this, well, you just need to go to the altar, You just need to take it to Jesus. And you want to say, I have been taking it to Jesus for a long time. And I'm still dealing with this. If you have ever felt that way, if you have ever been in a place where there's some sort of issue or problem or habit or anything like that, I want you to know that you are in really good community this morning. Because where we're going this morning is there's this person named the Apostle Paul. And we're going to be going to the, the letter to the Romans. And so if you want to move in that direction, grab a copy of the scriptures or on your phones. We're going to be in Romans chapter 7. And as you're moving in that direction, it's very important that we understand the context for Romans, Romans 7 and who was writing it. You see, Romans, Romans was written by this person named the Apostle Paul. Everybody say Paul. Right, and Paul was an apostle, meaning that uh, Paul was one of the one of the pillars, if you will, uh, in the early church. In fact, Paul was uh, he was so important. He he's the one that has given us about two thirds of the New Testament. And in the Romans, in the letter to the Romans, Paul is actually writing to a church. Uh, in Rome that was dealing with all kinds of conflict. They were dealing with all kinds of external conflict and, and different kind of pressures. And they had uh, different types of, of groups in their church. They had some groups uh, that were Republicans. And I'm just joking, right? Just see if you're tracking. But they had some that were, they had Jewish believers and they had Gentile believers. And the Gentile believers felt like the Jewish believers needed to be more Gentile. And the Gentile believers thought that the, you know, the Jews needed to put away their their, their lifestyle and how they used to do it. And so Paul writes to this church dealing with all kinds of conflict. But one of the things that Paul realized was that the external conflict that they were having was because of internal problems. And so he had to begin to address the internal thing before he could ever get to the external thing. 
But here is an even more interesting part of the letter to the Romans, is that Paul in Romans 7 is going to be writing from personal experience, meaning he's not addressing a situation from the outside. He's actually going to be writing about it because he has dealt with these things before. So if you're here this morning and you've ever wrestled, you feel like you're a Jesus follower, you feel like you've been following him for a while, you're trying to live this life, you're trying to do what's right, just know that Paul is in your boat as well. Check this out. We're going to read uh, Romans chapter 7 beginning in verse 15. If you've got it, would you say, I got it? it. All right. We're going to have it on the screen just for you too. It says this in verse 15. This is Paul. Paul, remember, Paul has has this miraculous conversion where he is literally knocked off his horse so that Jesus can tell him, you're living wrong. If anybody was following Jesus, it was Paul. But yet here's Paul. He says, I do not understand what I do. Has anybody ever been there before? Say, yeah. Yeah. Right? You ever been at a spot where you're like, I don't understand why I ate all those tacos from Taco Bell, right? You ever been there? Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Paul says, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I, what's the word? Hate. He's not saying what I dislike. He says what I hate. That's the thing that I do. Does anybody have any children here this morning? Say yeah. Children. Anybody a grandparent, aunt, uncle? Say yeah. Anybody ever been a child before? Everybody. Okay, right? When when you have kids or grandkids, isn't it so? so I have an almost two-year-old daughter. And, you know, when I walk in the room and she's doing something that she's not supposed to be doing or she's standing on something, I come in here, I go in the room and I say, what are you doing? Right? Don't you not say that to your children? Like, what are you doing? Like you're expecting some sort of rational response from a two-year-old, right? Oh, like, Dad, don't you know what I'm doing? I'm preparing, right? It's like she's two. She can't respond. But I want to know, what are you doing? I think what Paul is saying here is that it's like this, there's part of us that yells at the two-year-old part of us and says, what are you doing? But even Paul says, I don't know. I don't understand it. I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing. He goes on in verse 16. He says, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Now, pause there. I'm not going to go into it super deep. But what he's saying is he's affirming that I don't know what I'm doing. I have to have something that kind of keeps me in check. That's why he's saying, if this is how it plays out, then I have to agree that the law. Now, in their time, they had this thing called the Ten Commandments, and they had this thing, uh, they had laws around the Ten Commandments, and a a good uh, God-fearer or Christ follower would want to follow all of those things. And so what Paul is saying is like, I've got to have something around me if I can't figure this out. I've got to have a system of laws and things that will keep me from doing the things that I don't want to do. But he says, if I do that, then I have to agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is, what's that word? Oh, that one was really, really hushed out there. It was sin living in me. Now, wait a second. This is, this is, this is ding, ding, winner, winner, chicken dinner. This is the problem. This is the issue. This is what keeps us from getting to where God wants to lead us. So this morning as I opened up and I said, generally, this is where we're at. 
We are in this place. God wants to get us to that spot. The thing that trips us up, the thing that keeps us from getting to where we want to go and where God wants to go is, it go is that word right there, sin. Now, also, as we opened up, in order to get a prescription, we have to understand the diagnosis. What Paul is giving is a diagnosis. He's saying, this is the problem. This is the thing that is keeping me from where I want to go. But there's another thing in there that's very interesting to me. What does he say about sin? It's what? It's living in me. How many of you, you woke up this morning and you said, praise God, sin is alive in me. How many of you? Nobody does that, right? Paul says, what is this happening? Not only do I have this thing that's keeping me from living the life I want to live, but he's saying it's alive in me. There's, that means that there's something that is kind of governing me. It's, it's making decisions. It's, it's kind of moving me in direction. It's, it's alive in me. But the, the, the big idea from that is that he identifies what it is. Now, keep in mind, I cannot stress this context enough. We're not talking about uh, somebody just like, like out in the boonies. We're talking about Paul, the Apostle Paul, who understood who was a, he was basically a lawyer of the law. He knew it in and out. And then he had this miraculous conversion in which he literally saw the light and he changed his life. This is Paul. If anybody's getting into heaven, it's Paul. And even Paul is saying that there's this thing that keeps me from getting to where I need to go. And it's this thing called sin. Sin. Now, this is, sin is a word that has been maybe abused and misapplied in the church for a long time. Because immediately when we think of sin, we tend to shut down. We think that's somebody else's problem, right? We don't want to discuss it being a possibility for us. And I, and I want to alleviate that in just a moment because we have to start talking about this. Just like if I went to the dentist and I said, nothing to see here. All good, right? It's like I realize my face is swelled up on this side, but that's just a big piece of chew in there. You wouldn't know the difference. It's like I got to deal with this, right? I can't walk away from this. He said there is an abscess under your tooth. If you don't deal with this, it's going to lead to something serious. So this is what Paul is getting us to identify, and he's even identifying it for himself. But he goes on in verse 18, and this is kind of like this is a big deal. In verse 18, he says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is very interesting, right? He's, Paul says, I realize that good itself does not dwell in me. Paul is identifying that outside of the person of Jesus, outside of, the, of a relationship with Jesus, that there is nothing good within me. That is, and then he uses this word, my sinful nature. What he's referring to is, is a word that we would, might call in scripture and as theologians, flesh. Meaning that there's like these two parts in our, uh, of people, our flesh and our spirit. Our flesh is kind of like our desires and our attitudes and, you know, like our makeup. It's our humanity, right? It's what makes us human. It's our skin. It's all these things. And there's this other part scripture talks about of our spirit. And these two things, they war against us, meaning they want to go in two different directions. My flesh wants to go in this direction, and my spirit wants to go in that direction. This is what he's referring to when he says that, that um, it doesn't dwell in it because of my sinful nature. He says, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Paul, in all of his understanding of Scripture, 
in all of his upbringing, in all of, his, of, of, of where he was at in life, even that could not get him to this place where he could do what is good so that he could live that out. Now, I want to deal with something very, very quickly this morning, and that is that whole idea that there's nothing good within me. This is something that's super, kind of controversial. They've already you know, d- debated this for a number of years, right? And, and the, the issue is this, is what's at the core of our being. And scripture deals with this a couple different ways, but I wanted to highlight just one way in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 17, it says this, it's this next scripture. And I want to lay some framework for us. He says, the heart is what? Deceitful. What? The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. And then who can understand it? Our hearts, the core of who we are, it's deceitful, meaning that it will lead us astray. And it's beyond cure. Who can understand the heart? Have you ever heard anybody say this? I just got to follow my heart. Have you ever heard that before? I just got to follow my heart. Oh, wow, I know that you got a 2020 new Dodge Challenger with all of the bells and whistles. Why'd you buy it? I just had to follow my heart, right? And some salesman somewhere is taking all that money to the bank. Yes, they did, right? You ever heard that's the worst advice ever, right? Because what scripture tells me is that if my heart's deceitful, meaning it's gonna chase after its own wants and desires. And so we gotta deal with this part. We have to realize and understand, get a framework for what we're dealing with. Here's another big idea for you. You can't get better if you don't know what you're dealing with. Right? If I go to the dentist and I say there's a problem in my knee, he's going to send me away. We have to know what we're dealing with. We've got to be able to identify what the issue is. And Paul is saying, here's the issue. Sin. And sin has corrupted the core of who I am. And we've got to deal with this. And he finishes it in this. In verse 19 to 20, he says, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the The evil I do not want to do, that's what I keep on doing. Again, Apostle Paul. This is not Pastor Mike. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. This is the core issue. This is what we're going to unpack today and the next couple of weeks. But before we do that, I want to give some just real broad context um, for, for, of where God is leading us. There's two things I think that God wants for every single person in this room and every single person under the sound of my voice, especially those who are Jesus followers, is that God wants to bring you life and he wants to bring you peace. He wants to bring you life and he wants to bring you peace. Very quickly, you can go home and study this for yourself. In John 10, 10, Jesus identifies why he came. He says that the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come so that they may have life and have it to the full. Not just a little bit of life, like a lot of life, like Funner California type of life, right? A lot of life, abundant life. This is what I want to lead you to. The second thing is I want you to have peace, peace. I could argue that peace is the most thing that you want in your life, peace. How many of you would say, I want financial peace? Say, yeah. Oh man, there was like two people. The rest of you, you can take us to lunch afterwards, right? Well, how about this? How many of you, you would like to have relational peace? Say, yeah. 
How many of you would like to have peace in your family? Say yeah. And how many of you would like to have peace in your soul? Say yeah. Yes. This is where God wants to lead his people. He wants to give you life. He wants to give you peace. It's, it's important to understand where you are going so that we can know how to get there and what keeps us from getting there. Now, Paul has identified that it is sin that keeps us from getting to where we want to go. And let me peel that very, very quickly this morning. So sin, this is a, this is a definition from a person named Cornelius Platinga. And, and this is what he says. Sin is the culpable disturbance of this word shalom. Shalom. Now, when I say peace, peace we get from uh, um, one of the Hebrew meanings for peace is this idea of having balance, is of, is of having wholeness. Another way that I like to describe shalom is that when there is nothing missing and there is nothing broken. When you have shalom, when you have peace in your life, there is nothing missing and there is nothing broken. You had your 4th of July holiday and the right people came over to the place you wanted to come. And all the meat tasted so good, right? Man, am I the only one on this, right? Right? And it was so fun and you had so much fun and you experienced all the things and someone came over and cleaned up your house for you and you went to bed. Everything was as it should be. That's peace, right? Peace. And this is what happens when sin enters the scene is it disrupts the thing that God wants to give us. And there's another thing that I need to kind of like unpack. And that is, I think a lot of us feel that the reason that we're not living the life and experiencing the peace that God has for us is because of God. I think a lot of us think, oh, I committed a sin. God just wants to keep me from the thing. Oh, I think God just doesn't want me to experience happiness. Oh, I think I'm cursed. Oh, I think that God doesn't want me to to get to where I need to go. You need to hear something. God is not keeping you from life and peace. Do you know who's keeping you from life and peace? You. We are. And that's important for us to understand if we want to be able to overcome and get to where I believe God wants to take us. And so sin. Now, we, we as people forever have tried to avoid sin. We have done everything possible to try to like cartwheel our way and backflip our way and try to manipulate our way to avoid sin. In fact, there were these uh, people, they were called the Desert Fathers. Everybody say the Desert Fathers. The Desert Fathers, and I brought a photo of, of, of some artwork around this time. And the Desert Fathers, uh, it was right after, after the church, after Jesus came and the church was born. The Desert Fathers is a group of people, they realized, like, I, I want to get away from sin. Man, this life that God has, it's so good, it's so awesome. But I notice that I keep, there's this sin problem that keeps me from living this more fully. And so they felt like, oh, maybe it's culture. Maybe culture has corrupted me, or, or maybe it's the politics that corrupted me, or maybe it's society, right, or, or maybe it's whatever the thing, and maybe it's Instagram, right? but maybe something, right, has corrupted me, so I've got to, what they decided is, we'll just remove ourselves from society, and so what they did is that they, they packed up their stuff, and they left, and they went out to the desert, there we go, that's why they're called the Desert Fathers, and so they go out to the Desert Fathers and they decided, hey, we're going to set up our own little community. And there's not going to be any of that stuff. We're going to leave all the social media. We're going to leave all of the stuff. The TV's there, right? And we're just going to live together. We're going we're to worship God. We're going to arrange our lives around the worship of God. And they set up their little community. But guess what happened? 
they realized that even though they removed themselves from, from what they thought was a place of sin, that they still had this draw towards sin. And they realized, how can this be? And it led them on this journey through Scripture to begin to understand and, and read. And what they realized was that what Paul was talking about when he said that there's a sin living in me, that even if I leave that place of sin, I haven't left sin because it's still in my heart. And they developed the, the seven, what they call the seven deadly sins. Have you ever heard of that before? Right? The seven deadly sins. And the seven deadly sins is not, it's not in the script, not, there's not a Bible reference that references these things. But what they did was they combed through scripture and they realized that there's seven uh, categories, if you will, of sin that all of us seem to fall into. And that's what ends up keeping us from where we want to go. Now, one of the words that we're going to use is this word called vice. Everybody say vice, right? Not Miami vice, but vice, right? And this is what a vice is. I brought a definition. This is what a vice is. A vice isn't an isolated occurrence of sin. Now, that's important because I think a lot of us, when we're following Jesus and we commit a sin, we think that, Oh, I just committed that sin. What I need Jesus to do is sprinkle his little dust on that sin, and then I'll be okay. But what you have to understand is that sin is a symptom of something. Sin comes from some place. Maybe it was trauma when you were little. Maybe it was a decision you made. Maybe it's a, it's a pattern. But, but it came from some place of what we, would, what we call a vice. And a vice, it's not an isolated occurrence. It's a whole sin system. Think of each vice as a compulsion, a habit, an addiction. A vice is a pattern of behavior or a tendency cultivated over time through repeated actions that ultimately become responsible for a person's character. Do you know that what you do over time is what forms your character? That can go good or that can go bad. What a vice does is it moves you in that direction. And so when we talk about sin, we're not just talking about like, like an act. We're not talking about just one thing that happened. We're talking about that there's actually a system that that came from, and that's what Jesus wants to unroot. That's what he wants to get under. That's what he wants to begin to uproot so that he can put something else in its place. Now, there's two ways that we're going to go about this. One is you have to understand what you're dealing with. You have to understand what you're dealing with. If you want to be able to overcome the vices in your life, you got to know what vices are in your life. Because when we think of sin, we just kind of like paint this broad picture of whatever it is, and it becomes, it comes to mean everything and nothing. And so we got to know what we're dealing with. Uh, this, just this past week, I had an opportunity to go and see a... Um, uh, a, a knee specialist or, or a physical therapist. And um, I, about 13 years ago, a little backstory, I, I was an incredible college intramural athlete. I'm joking about that, right? We were, we were playing rec sports when I was in college and, uh, and I was 
playing flag football with some others and was running a route, made a cut, heard two little pops in my knee, and then sure enough, an MRI later, realized that I had tore my ACL. And so I went to the doctor and, and had that fixed. They did a, a hamstring graft to fix the ACL. And, uh, and ever since then, it was, it was fixed, but I always felt like it wasn't right. You know, there were, there, were times where, there were times where it just did not feel 100%, and, but, I, but it never really, like, slowed me down, kept moving. Well, fast forward here to the last couple of months, I don't know if it's one of two things. I don't know. I've been doing a little bit more exercising, a little bit more up and down stuff. I don't know if that's kind of caused some, you know, some problems or whatever, or <clears throat> just turned 35. I don't know if that had anything to do with it, right, or whatever it is, but my knee was causing some problems. And so what I went in, finally went in, and, uh, and when I was with um, uh, the physical therapist, you know, it's interesting what they do, because they sit you on the little table, and they pop your knees up, right? They check the good one, and then they check the bad one, and they start bending that thing like you don't want it to bend, right? They start moving it, they start asking you, does this hurt? And you're like, yeah, that's why I'm in here, you know, and they start moving it and doing all kinds of stuff, and like, sure enough, as he was moving it, had me do different things, he was able to kind of isolate it and isolate it and isolate it and identify what the problem was. You see, the same is true when we're trying to figure out what is ailing us. We have to honest, give an honest uh, look in the mirror and, and ask some hard questions of ourselves. It's like, what is going on here? Why do I continue to do this or live this way? The first thing is we have to understand what it is that we're dealing with. And also know this, that a vice, sometimes when we think of a vice and we think of the seven deadly sins, you know, we think of it as evil and bad and some Brad Pitt movie that happened a long time ago, right? We, we, we think of those things. But you need to know this, a vice is the absence of a virtue. A vice is an absence of a virtue. What I mean by that, if you were to look at the seven deadly sins, go ahead and put that up real quick. The seven deadly sins, you have pride, you have envy, you have wrath, you have sloth, you have greed, you have lust, you have gluttony. These we would, all, we would call vices, right? But a vice is an absence of a virtue. In fact, what we're going to see is that as Jesus begins to work with us and help us unroot this stuff, you're going to find that he doesn't just come and take this thing out and leave it void, but rather when he comes and he takes out a vice, he replaces it with a virtue. And over the next seven weeks, there's actually, it's interesting, because in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes, in the Beatitudes, we see the virtue that God intends for his people to live by. All those things, I would say, are just misapplied virtues. Meaning that you had a desire, you had a want, you had a, you know, a thing. And rather than allowing God to point you in the right direction to pursue that virtue, what we end up doing as people is we decide to meet our own needs our own ways. And Jesus understands, God understands that we have, he created us, hello, right? He knows, he knows, but he also knows that we often go in this direction when he wanted us to go in that direction, so first thing is that we have to understand what we're dealing with. The second thing is this. I want to end with this. I want to invite the band up is that Jesus paid it all. When we say that, when we celebrate the, resu- when we celebrate the resurrection and we look to the cross, you got to know this. Jesus paid it all, right? And we sing that song. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. That's beautiful, isn't it? I'm just joking, right? But we, we sing that song and we celebrate what he did. He accomplished it. 
What he accomplished on the cross is done. The, the blood that flowed from his body washed every sin of mine clean. But you got to know this too, that what Jesus does for us to find healing is he works with us. You see, we partner with Jesus in our own healing process. That's why when we say, hey, you need to go to the altar, you just need to give it to God. Yes, but it's, a, but it's an and. It's an and. And we partner with Jesus for our own healing. In Ephesians 4, let me end with this. In Ephesians 4, Paul is writing to an audience and he wants to remind them of how we overcome. He says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned. When he's writing to them, they were dealing with some stuff, things that they knew that they they didn't get from him or didn't get from Jesus. He says, that's not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and you were, what's that word? Taught. And you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Verse 22. says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on that new self. Scripture uses a lot of language about when we, when we become new and we, we begin to follow him, almost like, a, almost like a garment. That what Jesus does, when we, when we give our life to him and we surrender our life to him, he says, awesome. And he puts his garment on us. He puts that new self on us. And as we walk with him, as we move with him, as we move in partnership with him, he begins to make us new. He says, and to put on that new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. One of the first songs, first or second songs that we sang, we talked about when we see him, we'll be like him. When we see him, we will be like him. Why? That's because we will have been shaped and formed into his character into his likeness. That is how we experience life. That is how we experience peace. As Jesus is there and we move towards him and we are guided by him and we move in partnership with him and we allow Jesus to take out the vice and replace it with a virtue, we become like him in righteousness and holiness. That is how we move forward. That is how we experience life and we experience peace. So this week was intended to be an introduction. For the next couple of weeks, every single week, we're going to look at one of those things, and we're also going to look at what Jesus prescribed as an antidote. For pride, there's a thing, and all the different things. There's an antidote, because you can't just take one out and leave it vacant. Something else will come in its place. It has to be replaced with a virtue good news is, is that Jesus wants to walk with us because he's for us. Amen. Let me pray for us this morning.